Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn. Cole Hahn's shoes, bags, and outerwear go with you while you work your way to extraordinary. More at colehahn.com. In this episode, we feature poet and essayist Adrian Rich, who came to Portland as part of our Poetry Downtown series in 2006. Adrian Rich was one of the most widely read and influential public intellectuals of the second half of the 20th century, and her work often spoke directly to social justice issues. Born in 1929, Rich published over 30 books of poetry and essays. She passed away in 2013. The original introduction to this event was made by Judith Barrington, an award-winning writer, poet, and teacher who lives here in Oregon. And she did so, so beautifully and personally, that I'm going to turn the rest of this introduction over to Judith. Oh, one note. There are several references in this episode to large-scale protests. These are references to objections to the Second Gulf War, also referred to as the War in Iraq, which, at the time of this event in 2006, was going into its third year. So here's Judith Barrington introducing Audrey and Rich. It's truly a great honor to introduce Adrienne Rich. She is the author of nearly 20 volumes of poetry, three collections of essays, and a groundbreaking study of motherhood. She has won the Yale Younger Poets Prize, the National Book Award, the Ruth Lilly Prize, the National Poetry Association Award for Distinguished Service to the Art of Poetry, and numerous other awards. She has taught at Swarthmore, Columbia, Brandeis, Cornell, Stanford, and many, many other universities. She was also, in 1997, offered the National Medal for the Arts, but she refused to accept the presidential honor in protest against the government's increasing erosion of United States democracy. Her speech of refusal also mentioned the damage to the arts being wrought by profit-minded conglomerates moving in on publishing and the media. It is both sad and frustrating to me that in this country we continue to debate whether poetry matters, whether poetry can be political, and if it is, whether it can be considered good. The work of Adrienne Rich in any reasonable world would put an end to that debate. Her poetry has been so widely recognized for its quality that even those who disagree with her politics can surely no longer deny her stature as a poet. Adrienne herself has said she believes that poetry makes a huge difference. Other people's poetry has made a difference in her life and her poetry, in turn, has mattered in ways we may never completely know to untold numbers of us who have been reading her for years. Her brilliance as a poet and her deep commitment to social justice are inextricably linked. She said in an interview with The Progressive, justice and creativity have something intrinsically in common. The effort to make justice and the creative impulse are deeply aligned And when you feel the necessity of a creative life, I think you become aware of what's lacking, that not everyone has this potentiality available to them that is being withheld from so many. This is an impulse that has led her to write poetry, which she prefers to name poetry of witness, poetry of dissent, poetry that is the voice of those and on behalf of those who are generally unheard. Adrienne's feminist poems, her lesbian poems, her meditations on honesty, North American history, and imperialism, as well as her essays on the writing life, from these and more, I have been able to learn vital lessons about being a writer, about craft, 
and above all about the importance of forming and articulating unshakable, well-informed, and humane values. Sometimes I have used her poems when no other words seemed as relevant. For example, some of you may remember, in 1986, a school climbing group was caught in a storm on Mount Hood, and two adults and seven students lost their lives. At a reading soon afterwards, I shared Fantasia for Elvira Shatayev. That poem begins, the cold felt cold until our blood grew colder, then the wind died down and we slept. And later, when you have buried us, told your story, ours does not end, we stream into the unfinished, the unbegun, the possible. The possible is something that Adrian Rich's work not only envisions, but urges us to demand. It is work that must have taken an enormous toll, requiring an unflinching attention to painful realities. I am very grateful to have been both blessed and challenged by these many, many poems. Please help me welcome one of our greatest poets, Adrienne Rich. Thank you. Thank you for this incredibly warm welcome. Thank you, Judith, for your incredibly warm words. Before I sit down, I want to thank you all also for the news of the tremendous demonstration yesterday in Portland, uh, which I know many of you were at. I read the news on the web, and I scan the foreign press, the uh, United States press, and uh, I tuned into Portland this morning very early, and uh, my heart was lifted. So thank you all for who you are and what you're doing. I'm going to begin with a poem, and then I'm just going to say a few words. Walking by the fence, but the house not there. Going to the river, but the river looking spare. Bones of the river spread out everywhere. Oh, tell me this is home. Crossing the bridge, but some planks not there. Looking at the shore, but only getting back the glare. Dare you trust the river when there's no water there? Oh, tell me, is this home? Getting into town, seeing nobody I know. Folks standing around, nowhere to go. Staring into the air like they saw a show. Oh, tell me, was this my home? Come to the railroad, no train on the tracks. Switchman in his shanty with a great big axe. So what happened here? So what are the facts? So tell me, where is my home? What does home mean when home is this America which seems to have lost its mind and its soul in a drive to dominate the world. A lot of my poems over the past 15 or 20 years have been written under the challenge of those questions. And also the question of love, which cannot be separated from a social world, a communal fabric. These are dark, confused, and demoralizing years. Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, a Republican appointee, in a recent speech warned that in losing the balance of power between the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary, we are edging toward dictatorship. Those were her words. Perhaps we are already there having sold our democratic process to the highest bidders. In the shock of fear after the 2001 attacks, we acceded as a nation, though not all of us did, to an unconsidered patriotism, to an invasion and occupation framed in lies and pursued with illegal and incompetent brutality. Perhaps dictatorship, the police state, feels and smells different 
in this America than in Nazi Germany or fascist Italy or Tsarist Russia or the Stalinist Soviet Union or Pinochet's Chile or Saddam Hussein's Iraq. But there are similarities. Perhaps we need to consider it whole, not piecemeal, or in terms of individual, obnoxious, ridiculous, non-elected public figures. Perhaps we need to recognize that we have no opposition party on the side of the middle class, let alone the disenfranchised. Perhaps we need to talk about the dictatorship of capitalism itself, the humanity it chokes, the lives it locks up or sends to war, the minds and bodies it throws away, the racism, repression, and torture it requires for its devouring growth. If capitalism requires not just oil, but air, water, and blood to nourish itself, if in the richest capitalist nation there is widespread fear, anxiety, alienation, anger, and poverty, maybe we need to imagine other versions of a global economy and work for other ways of living and producing and sharing the necessities of life. As a poet, I felt bound to pay attention to this difficult world. My art depends on that. And now I'm going to move, not away from politics, but into poetry. This is a group of three, of uh, several short poems under the title, What Kind of Times Are These?, which is from the, a poem by the great German playwright and poet, communist, Bertolt Brecht, who asked, what kind of times are these when it seems almost a crime to talk about trees because it means keeping silent about so many evil deeds? There's a place between two stands of trees where the grass grows uphill, and the old revolutionary road breaks off into shadows near a meeting house, abandoned by the persecuted who disappeared into those shadows. I've walked there, picking mushrooms at the edge of dread. But don't be fooled. This isn't a Russian poem. This is not somewhere else but here, our country, moving closer to its own truth and dread, its own ways of making people disappear. I won't tell you where the place is, the dark mesh of the woods, meeting the unmarked strip of light, ghost-ridden crossroads, leaf-mold paradise. I know already who wants to buy it, sell it, make it disappear. And I won't tell you where it is, so why do I tell you anything? Because you still listen? Because in times like these, to have you listen at all, it's necessary to talk about trees. In those years, in those years, people will say, we lost track of the meaning of we, of you. We found ourselves reduced to I. And the whole thing became silly, ironic, terrible. We were trying to live a personal life. And yes, that was the only life we could bear witness to. But the great dark birds of history screamed and plunged into our personal weather. They were headed somewhere else, but their beaks and pinions drove along the shore through the rags of fog where we stood saying, I. This is called To the Days, and the, this is, it's a, the you in this poem is the days of our lives. 
And the Rosa in the poem is the great German communist revolutionary, Rosa Luxemburg, whose wonderful letters from prison I always urge people to read because they show that a revolutionary is not a tooth-gritted, dismal person as they often are represented, uh, but as someone full of flair and fire and the love of life. To the days, from you I want more than I've ever asked, all of it, the newscasts, terrible stories of life in our time, the knowing it's worse than that, much worse, the knowing what it means to be lied to, fog in the mornings, hunger for clarity, coffee and bread with sour plum jam, numbness of soul in placid neighborhoods, lives ticking on as if, a typewriter's torrent suddenly still, blue soaking through fog, two dragonflies wheeling, acceptable levels of cruelty steadily rising. Whatever you bring in your hands, I need to see it. Suddenly, I understand the verb without tenses, to smell another woman's hair, to taste her skin, to know the bodies drifting underwater. To be human, said Rosa, I can't teach you that. A cat drinks from a bowl of marigolds, his moment. Surely the love of life is never-ending, the failure of nerve, a charred fuse. I want more from you than I ever knew to ask. Wild pink lilies erupting, tasseled stalks of corn in the Mexican gardens, corn and roses, shortening days, strawberry fields in ferment with tossed aside bruised fruit. And this is called Miracle Ice Cream. Miracle's truck comes down the little avenue, Scott Joplin ragtime strewn behind it like pearls. And yes, you can feel happy with one part of your heart. Take what's still given in a room's rich shadow a woman's breast swinging lightly as she bends. Early now the pearl of dusk dissolves. Late you sit weighing the evening news, fast food miracles, ghostly revolutions, the rest of your heart. And this is called Rachel, and it was written for my niece born in Alaska. There's a girl born in abrupt August light far north, a light soon to be peeled like an onion down to nothing. Around her, irons are falling in torrents, glacial eyes are staring, the monster's body trapped in the bay goes through its spasms. What she opens her gray eyes on is drastic, even the man and woman gazing into her unfocused gaze, searching for focus, are drastic. It's the end of a century. If she gets to grow old, if there's anything, anyone to speak, will they say of her? She grew up to see it. She was our mother, but she was born one of them. This is called Midnight Salvage, which is a sign that I used to pass on a road in Vermont many times. It was a kind of scrapyard, junkyard. And it begins and ends with the constellation Orion, who has appeared in my work a number of times along with foxes. I mean, not Orion, with foxes, but foxes and Orion I've been very attached to. Uh, and... Um, there's an allusion in it to the English cemetery 
which is the Protestant cemetery in Rome, where the great Italian revolutionary Antonio Gramsci is buried, and also the great English poet John Keats. Up skyward, through a glazed rectangle, I sought the light of a so-called heavenly body, a planet, or our moon in some event, and caught nothing, nothing but a late wind, pushing around some Monterey pines, themselves in trouble and rust-limbed. Nine o'clock, July, the light undrained, that blotted blue that lets, has let, will let, thoughts blood ebb between life and death time, dark red behind dark blue, bad news pulsing back and forth of us and them. And all I wanted was to find an old friend, an old figure, an old trigonometry, still true to our story in orbits flaming or cold. Under the conditions of my hiring, I could profess or declare anything at all, since in that place nothing would change. So many fountains, such guitars at sunset. Did not want any more to sit under such a window's deep embrasure, wisteria bulging on spring air, in that borrowed chair, with its collegiate shield at a borrowed desk, under photographs of the Spanish steps, Keats's death mask, and the English cemetery, all so under control and so eternal, in burnished frames, or occupy the office of the Marxist on sabbatical with Gramsci's fast-fading eyes, thumbtacked on one wall opposite a fading print of the same cemetery, had memories and death masks of my own, could not any more peruse young faces already straining for the production of slender testaments to swift reading and current thinking, would not wait for the stroke of noon to declare all passions obsolete, could not play by the rules in that palmy place, nor stand at lectern professing anything at all in their hire. Had never expected hope would form itself completely in my time, was never so sanguine as to believe old injuries could transmute easily through any singular event or idea, never so feckless as to ignore the managed contagion of ignorance, the contrived discontinuities, the felling of leaders and future leaders, the pathetic erections of soothsayers. But thought I was conspiring, breathing along with history's systole diastole, 20,000 leagues under the sea, a mammal heartbeat, sheltering another heartbeat, plunging from the Farallons all the way to Baja, sending up here or there a blowhole signal, and sometimes beached, making for warmer waters where the new would be delivered, though I would not see it. But neither was expecting in my time to witness this. Wasn't deep, lucid, or mindful, you might say, enough to look through history's bloodshot eyes into this commerce, this dreadnought wreck, cut loose from all vows, oaths, patents, compacts, promises, to see not, oh, my captain, fallen cold and dead by the assassin's hand, but cold, alive, and cringing, drinking with the assassins in suit of noir Hong Kong silk, pushing his daughter in her famine-wasted flamingo-colored gown out on the dance floor with the traffickers in nerve gas, saying to them, go for it, and to the girl, get with it.
When I ate and drank liberation, once I walked arm in arm with someone who said she had something to teach me. It was the avenue and the dwellers, free of home, roofless, women without pots to scour or beds to make, or combs to run through hair, or hot water for lifting grease, or cans to open, or soap to slip in that way under arms, then beneath breasts, then downward to thighs. Oil drums were alight under the freeway, and bottles reached from pallets of cardboard corrugate, and piles of lost and found to be traded back and forth, and figures arranging themselves from the wind. Through all this she walked me and said, My name is Liberation, and I come from here. Of what are you so afraid? We've hung late in the bars like bats, kissed goodnight at the stoplights. Did you think I wore this city without pain? Did you think I had no family? Past the curve where the old craftsman was run down, there's a yard called Midnight Salvage. He was walking in the road which was always safe. The young driver did not know that road, its curves, or that people walked there, or that you could speed yet hold the curve, watching for those who walked there, such skills he did not have, being in life unpracticed. But I have driven that road in madness and driving rain, 30 years in love and pleasure and grief blind, On ice I have driven it, and in the vague haze of summer, between clumps of daisies and sting of fresh cowflop odors, lucky I am I hit nobody, old or young, killed nobody, left no trace, practiced in life as I am. This horrible patience, which is part of the work, This patience, which waits for language, for meaning, for the least sign. This encumbered, plodding state, doggedly dragging the ivy up and down the corridor with the plastic sack of blood-stained urine. Only so can you start living again, waking to take the temperature of the soul when the black irises lean at dawn, from the mouth of the bedside pitcher. This condition in which you swear, I will submit to whatever poetry is. I accept no limits. Horrible patience. You cannot eat an egg. You don't know where it's been. The ordinary body of the hen vouchsafes no safety. The countryside refuses to supply. Milk is powdered, meats in both senses high. Old walls, the pride of architects collapsing, find us in crazed niches, sleeping like foxes. We wanters, we unwanted, we wanted for the crime of being ourselves. Fame slides on its belly like any other animal after food. Ruins are disruptions of system, leaking in weeds and light, redrawing the city of expectations. You cannot eat an egg. Unstupefied, not unhappy, we braise wild greens and garlic, feed the feral cats, And when the fog's irregular documents break open, scan its fissures for young stars in the belt of Orion. This is a poem that I wrote thinking about all the poems, all the works of art, films, music, paintings that have sustained me uh, when I felt close to despair. 
Um, it's called For This. If I've reached for your lines, I have, like letters from the dead that stir the nerves, doused you for a springhead to water my thirst, dug into my compost skeletons and petals you surely meant to catch the light. At work in my worm-eaten, wormwood, raftered, stateless underground, have I a plea? If I've touched your finger with a ravenous tongue, licked from your palm a rift of salt, if I've dreamt or thought you a pack of blood, fresh drawn, hanging dark red from a hook, higher than my heart. You who understand transfusion, where else should I appeal? A pilot light lies low while the gas jets sleep. A cat getting towed from stove into nocturnal ice. Language uncommon and agile as truth melts down the most intractable silence. A lighthouse keeper's ethics, you tend for all or none. For this you might set your furniture on fire. Of this we have blundered over, as if the lamp could be shut off at will, rescue denied for some, and still a lighthouse be. And this is called... There is no one story and one story only. Uh, the British poet Robert Graves has actually a very beautiful poem called To Juan at the Winter Solstice, um, which begins, there is one story and one story only that will prove worth your telling. And uh, this, the title of this is There is no one story and one story only. Most of this poem I overheard in airport lounges or waiting in line for something. And a lot of it is, you know, other people's conversations, their truths. The engineer's story of hauling coal to Davenport for this cement factory, sitting on the bluffs between runs looking for whales, hauling concrete back to Gilroy, he and his wife renewing vows in the glass chapel in Arkansas after 25 years. The flight attendant's story murmured to the flight steward in the dark galley of her fifth-month loss of nerve about carrying the baby she'd seen on the screen. The story of the forensic medical team's small plane landing on an Alaska ice field, of the body in the bag they had to drag over the ice like the whole life of that body. The story of the man driving 600 miles to be with a friend in another country, seeming easy when leaving, but afterward writing in a letter difficult truths. Of the friend watching him leave, remembering the story of her body with his once, and the stories of their children made with other people, and how his mind went on, pressing hers like a body. There is the story of the mind's temperature, neither cold nor celibate, ardent, the story of not one thing only. I want to finish up with some new poems that I've been working on. This is called Calibrations, and... Uh, I will remind you that Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld in December uh, 2004, when the question started being raised about the inadequate um, equipment and training of troops, American troops in Iraq, said, you go to war with the army you have. And uh, Landstuhl is the... Uh, military hospital in Germany where um, wounded American military are taken uh, on the first stage of their journey back to the States. And uh, a great many of those people 
are horribly mutilated, uh, losing uh, limbs more than in any other war. So this is called Calibrations. And it begins with someone who goes about and uh, plays music in army hospitals or wherever. She tunes her guitar, the Landstuhl, where she will sit on beds and sing ballads from when the gypsies roamed Spain and gave poetry its soul. Singer, whose long, strong fingers pluck and whir. A prosthetic hand calibrates perfectly the stem of a glass or how to stroke a face. This is how far we have come, technologically speaking. Making love could be not difficult, after all. Ghost limbs go into spasm in the night. You come back from war with the body you have. What you can't bear, carry, endure, lift, or birth, you'll have to drag. It'll come with you, the ghost limb, the shadow, blind echo of your body, specter of your soul. Let's not talk of healing yet, nor making love, nor of ingenious devices replacing touch. A poem to break the heart so it will want to go on beating. And this is not theoretical. I have another quote from one of our non-elected. I found this very interesting. Uh, On Meet the Press on September 16th, 2001, which was precisely five days after the uh, attacks on the Twin Towers, Vice President Cheney said, We also have to work, though, sort of the dark side. Use any means at our disposal, basically, to achieve our objective. This is not the room of polished tables lit with metal torsos bent toward microphones, where ears lean, hands scribble, working the dark side, glazed eye meeting frozen eye, This is not the room where tears along carven cheeks track rivulets in the scars left by the gouging tool, where wood itself is weeping, where the ancient painted eye speaks to the living eye. This is the room where truth scrubs around the pedestal of the toilet, flings her rag into the bucket, straightens up, spits at the mirror. This is called wallpaper. And in this poem, I made up for the purposes of this poem uh, two pieces of mu- the names of two pieces of music. Uh, one is Sonata for Unaccompanied Minor, and <laughs> the other is Fugitive Variations. I just don't you want you to go looking for these titles in (laughs) Amazon.com. Wallpaper. A room papered with clippings, newsprint in bulging patches, none of which mention our names. Gone from that history then, oh, red kite snarled in a cloud, small plane melted in fog, no matter I worked to keep it current and meaningful. A job of living, I thought. History as wallpaper, urgently selected, clipped, and pasted. But the room itself, nowhere. Gone the address, the house. Golden oak banisters zigzagging upward. Stained glass on the landings. Streaked porcelain in the bathrooms. Loose floorboards. Quitting in haste, we pried up to secrete the rash imagination of a time to come. What we said then, our breath, remains otherwhere, in me, in you. Sonata for unaccompanied minor, fugitive variations, 
discs we played over and over on the one-armed phonograph. Childish we were in our adoration of the dead composer who'd ignored the weather signs trying to cross the Andes, stupidly, I'd say now. And you'd agree, seasoned as we are, working stretched weeks, eating food bought with ordinary grudging wages, keeping up with rent, utilities, a job of living, as I said. Clocks are set back, quick dark, snow filters past my lashes. This is the common ground, white crusted sidewalks, windshield wipers, licking, creaking, to and fro, to and fro. The handwritings on the walls are vast and coded. The music blizzards past. If the word gets out, if the word escapes, if the word flies, if it dies, it has its way of coming back. And this is a longer poem. Its working title is Draft Number 2006. So, we always hope we're not repeating ourselves, but sometimes it's a case of having to say the same thing in different ways. Suppose we came back as ghosts asking the unasked questions. What were you there for? Why did you walk out? What would have made you stay? Why wouldn't you listen? Can't we get it right this time? Can't you show us what you meant? Can't you put it another way? You were looking for openings where they'd been walled up. But you were supposed to be our teacher. One-armed, I was trying to get you one by one out of that cellar. It wasn't enough. Dream faces blurring borderlands of horror and poetry. Ebb tide washes out clinging rock pool creatures, no swimming back into sleep. Clockface says, too early, body prideful and humble, shambles into another day, reclaiming itself, piecemeal, in private ritual acts. Reassembling the puzzle scattered nightly, rebuilding daily the sand city. What's concrete for me? From there, I can cast out further, but need to be there on the concrete causeway, a fisherman's widow, feet planted, staring through fog. Sleeping that time at the philosopher's house, not lovers, friends from the past. Music, the vertex of our triangle. Bach, our hypotenuse, strung between philosophy and poetry. Sun loosening fog on the hillside. Cantatas spun on the turntable. Wie schön der Morgenstern. Feeling again in our mid-forties, the old contrapuntal tension of our natures, the future as if still open, like when we were classmates. He'd met Heidegger in the Black Forest, corresponded with Foucault. We talked about Wittgenstein, I was on my way to meet the one who said, philosophers have interpreted the world. The point is to change it. That's Karl Marx. <laughs> on a street known for beautiful shops, she buys herself a piece of antique Japanese silk, a white porcelain egg. Had abandoned her child, later went after him, found the child had run away. Hurt and angry, joined a group to chant through the pain. They said, you must love yourself, give yourself gifts. Whatever eases you, someone says, let you forgive yourself, let go. Only in America, says another. Desolate, orphaned here, don't even know it. Silent limousines meet jets descending over the Rockies. Steam rooms, 
pure thick towels, vases of two rows and jasmine, old vintages await the apres skiers. Rooms of mahogany and leather, conversations resuming in international code. Out of sight, out of mind, alone, she wrestles a huge duvet, resheathes the heavy, tasseled bolsters, nights, ices, her strained arms. Elsewhere, in Andhra, in Andhra Pradesh, another farmer swallows pesticide. Limping through outskirts of the city, past the condemned hospital coughing up its detritus. Emergency exit, gurneys lined double, mercy exhausted. Grills and cranes clearing way for the new premises, the disensolment projects. As if I already stood at their unglazed windows, eyeing the distressed sight through skeletal angles. Had thought I deserved nothing better than these cold towers named for conglomerates, a line of credit, a giveaway. They asked me, is this time worse than another? I said, for whom? Wanted to show them something. While I wrote on the chalkboard, they drifted out. I turned back to an empty room. Maybe I couldn't write fast enough. Maybe it was too soon. The sheer mass of the thing, its thereness, could stun anyone's thought. Since it exists, it must have existed, will exist. It says so here. Excruciating contempt for love, for the rough, vexed history of common affections, mutual assistance, turned up in landfill, Closed tunnels, drought-sheared riverbeds, street beds named in old census books, crushed by the expressway. Contraband packets, hummed messages, dreams of the descendants. Teachers bricolating scattered schools of trust, rootlets watered by fugitives. Hand reaching for its like, exposes a scarred wrist, numerals, a bracelet of rust, defiance surfacing in a desert observatory under plaster dust, crushed lenses left by the bombardments, star maps crackle, unscrolling. I wanted to tell you I loved you without falling back on words. Words that had failed us, where we had met our failings. I desired not you so much as your life, your prevailing. Not for me, but for furtherance, how you would move on the horizon. You, the person. You, the particle. Fierce and furthering. And this is called Behind the Motel. And those of you who know the Sestina form in poetry will recognize that this is not a Sestina, but it's, it's similar. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, a, it's a quite wonderful form. And uh, in it, uh, the last line, the last word of each line uh, is repeated throughout the stanzas. Um, but in a different order. I started writing this, and it started happening, and I thought, well, am I writing a Sestina? And I thought, no. Uh, <laughs> because it, did, it, needed to be, it needed to be more compact. It needed not to be so spread out. Behind the motel, a man lies under a car, half bare, a child plays bullfight with a torn cloth. Hemlocks grieve in wraps of mist. A woman talks on the phone, looks in a mirror, fiddling with the metal pull of a drawer. She has seen her world wiped clean, 
the cloth that wiped it disintegrate in mist or dying breath on the skin of a mirror. She has felt her life close like a drawer, has awoken somewhere else, bare. He feels his skin as if it were mist, as if his face would show in no mirror. He needs some bolts he left in a vanished drawer, crawls out into the hemlocked world with his bare hands, wipes his wrench on an oil-soaked cloth, stares at the woman talking into a mirror who has shut the phone into the drawer while over and over with a torn cloth at the edge of hemlocks behind the bare motel a child taunts a horned beast made from mist. Thank you very much for your listening and for for all your activism. That was Audrey and Rich from a Poetry Downtown event in 2006. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Join us next time for the Archive Project, a literary arts production in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from the Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn, on a mission to fuel your big ideas. More at colehahn.com. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joe T. Roy and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.